What's going on, everybody? Today's Going Off Track features Chris Gethard, amazing comedian, amazing person. He's an author. An he, author. He wrote a book called um, A Bad Idea I'm About to Do, True Tales of Seriously Poor Judgment and Stunningly Awkward Adventure, and I got it out from the library. Oh. And it's super awesome. You guys should all get it. Buy it. He, um, even though I didn't. <laughs> no, even though you didn't buy it. Or you, take it out from the library. I, I, go to the li- I read a ton of books from the library. Because you're a communist? <laughs> no, because I don't have room for any more books in my tiny apartment. And all they have is shelves there, and you can just borrow stuff. Exactly. Um, Kindle. Yeah, I, I Kindle sometimes. I can't watch or read anything. Watch or read anything. Just and that's the end of my sentence. I can't watch or read anything. <laughs> I can't read stuff electronically. And so many people in the comic book world now are using, you know, comicsology and things and reading comics, you know, on their iPad. And I just I can't get into it. You can't it. do it. Mm, it's weird. And I feel I, I feel like my dad. I'm like, nah, I need I need paper. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm backing the buggy whip. But you know, you know when like when the iPhone first came out. There were a few comics that were made specifically for it because they were apps. Mm-hmm. And that's actually really cool because if it's formatted for the iPhone and you like, you know, you swipe through, it's, I mean, the frames are all the same size. So it's a little restrictive, but it actually is really, it's kind of cool. It works well. Like the size is actually appropriate. Yeah. There's, there's some books that, that are made for, for like, that are, you know, apps basically. There's a company called yeah. Made Fire and they make comics and they're supposed to move. You know what I mean? Right. And the, and that I like. Um, but I don't like it when they take comics and just make... We talked about this with Ron Richards. They just they just take a comic book and add a little bit of movement to it and the thought bubbles kind of jiggle. Like, I don't dig that at all. No. But I have I have a couple of books on my phone and iPad. Like, um, it's a Charlie Brown Christmas. Did a crazy one that's ridiculously interactive. Really? That you touch everything and they move. There's there's one for Good Night Moon for all the parents out I'm there. I'm going to get the Charlie Brown one. <laughs> yeah, that one sounds awesome. It's really cool. And then Richard Dawkins did a book that's um, uh, slightly less annoying than he can be uh, about like a reality versus... It's about like how cool science is, you know? It's like, of course there are... People thought that thunder was from a god because they didn't know any better. When you find out what thunder is and what lightning is, that's actually way cooler right. than... A guy with a hammer. But I counter, is it, (laughs) is it Richard Dawkins? (laughs) Because that new Thor trailer looks pretty good. In fact, it looks so good, it probably hurts. (laughs) Get it, Joda? Cheap. Get it? Yeah, I get it. Get it? (laughs) You're Thor? (laughs) Shabam! (laughs) That's the reason I don't do comedy and Chris Gethard does. So today on Going Off Track, our guest is Chris Gethard. Hi. And this is funny. We, we learned that, that Chris was supposed to come a number of times, but by booking our show, that got you work on NBC Primetime. Well, yeah. Three different times I've been asked to do this show. Twice I've committed to it, right? And both I think so. Tw- those two times I booked episodes of The Office, weeks apart not knowing I was going to even have a second episode. And then the last time you emailed me, I was on the set of a movie. <laughs> so every time, this is a good luck charm. But yeah. that streak has ended. Sorry, I'm not, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that because we want you here to talk about all your cool stuff, but we also want you to be able to do cool stuff. And, and now that it. I've committed to doing it, it's over. You don't, <laughs> That's true. I, don't need, I won't get those emails anymore. <laughs> 
I can keep sending the emails. <laughs> Please just, do. Like, you can show up. Be like, no, I didn't really want you to come back. I just wanted to invite you. Yeah. But you yeah. can come back whenever you want. We kind of have an open door policy with all guests. <laughs> if you want to come, even just hang. Vanessa Bayer does it all the time. She comes and hangs out. She does. She does. But she does, like, Vanessa does bits a lot where, like, you're talking and then I'm like, oh, she's doing, like, a joke. But it's hard to tell at first. So I thought maybe with us, I was like, is this, like, some... I, I wasn't sure if it was, like, a bit. I was like, is Chris, like... Because no. I feel like a it lot of comedians I know like, we're always doing these, like, weird me- meta jokes where yeah. you're like, oh, okay. Because we're, inse- we're an insecure subculture of people who can't have genuine conversations. <laughs> It's almost impossible. <laughs> Especially since most conversations are now read and not spoken. Yeah. It's always hard to handle um, emphasis. There, I had some, like one of my wife's like random relatives put something on Facebook angrily commenting on something I said with an exclamation point. And I remember thinking, I, I, I don't know him. How can, how dare he yell at me? He's not yelling. He was typing something. Who knows what his feelings were. He just put an exclamation point on. Yeah. What I thought he was yelling if he hit a comma. You know what I mean? It's exactly, it's just very odd. It's hard to tell when people are messing with you. Yeah. But it's funny. Well, speaking of insecurity, um, I read your book. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Um, A fantastic and appropriate segue. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I really, really, I mean, I I really liked it, but it was, I mean, it did, it seemed like that was a big theme of the book, obviously, like adolescence, insecurity, kind of that kind of stuff. I mean, how did that sort of come about? Because I'm always curious when people write. I mean, did you have these kind of essays just floating around you wanted to put together? Or did you have want to do it all at once? Well, I started, um, you know, I started out doing comedy as an improviser primarily and was doing that for years and just sort of hit a point that I think a lot of people do where, you know, I'd been doing it for a long time and wanted to just kind of expand what I was doing and started up a storytelling show years ago, like 2005, 2006, which is still running at UCB. It's called The Nights of Our Lives. And that was, really, there was like The Moth and one or two other storytelling shows. And we were like the first one that was just like, let's do no lessons, no morals, just like funny stories. Mostly because like I had all these other improviser friends who would sit, you know, we'd all go to the bar and these guys would be telling stories and it was like a crowd would gather anyway, so we might as well sell tickets in the theater, you know? And it was really one of the only storytelling shows, which now there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of shows in New York dedicated to that. And we we were in the early wave of that. And just by being a part of that show, I wound up developing like 30 to 40 stories that I told on stage that I knew worked. And then I kind of took a whole bunch of them and and did a show where I would just uh, let people sort of draw the name of a story out out of a box. And then I'd tell it and it would cut to a video of my mom reacting to the story after I was done. And... I'd just been telling them for years on stage and sort of getting the funny parts down and committed to the fact of like, I should, I should actually, I feel like a lot of people who have an improv background have a problem with committing to anything permanent. You're so used to just like, you go on stage and you just say some stuff and people laugh and then you walk away. And I just was kind of getting restless and have it sort of have a chip on my shoulder about, I always have it in my head that people think I shouldn't succeed and which is not true, uh, but I always have that in my head. So I kind of put a chip on my shoulder of like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to make these stories into a book. And it took years after that. It took, I think it was from writing the first proposal to getting an agent to redoing the proposal to pitching it around to publishing it was, I think, six years that I was working on the book, which the book is not, you wouldn't think that. Like, it's not, it's not, you know, it's funny stories. It doesn't feel like something that took six years, but 
it did. So I just fought for it. I just kind of mentally committed to that would be cool to write a book. I have stories that I think would work in a book. I'm going to write a book. And then eventually someone published the book <laughs> after many years of rejections. But I think it's tough to, I feel, I laugh a lot when I see improv or stand up, but I don't laugh as much. I laughed a lot during your book, but I feel like it's harder to make people laugh reading for some reason. I think that's true. And I was actually, the, the, one of the, like the strangest things for me was that I, I, I sort of had to go through and make the stories less funny because originally they just read like transcripts of, of material I'd done on stage. They read like transcripts of someone telling a story to a comedy audience or doing stand up, And that's not how books work. It's a very different style of writing. So I had to sort of like space things out and include a lot more about the reactions of those around me and my internal thoughts. And it was like a very strange, but re- I mean like rewarding process, but it was really quite interesting and, and a learning process. And some of them I feel like I, I did pretty well on. And then, you know, I'll go on Amazon like once every few months and like see if there's any new reviews. Cause I'm vain and I will admit that I'm vain. <laughs> and, uh, like one of the comments that comes up a lot from people who don't like the book is like, man, there's like some, like, how come at like the end of these essays, he has to force in like a lesson. And I'm like, that's true. That's true. Like I was learning how to write for a book and needed to put that stuff in there. And sometimes it's ham fisted. So I think it is hard to write a funny book because it's not like that stand up or, or improv mentality of like you go out and you find out what's funny and you get your laughs. Like there's more to it than that, which was made abundantly clear to me by the many publishers who rejected <laughs> my original <laughs> versions of the essays. <laughs> well, you know what I also really respect is like I think about that period in my life and like I just a lot of times I just don't want to go there or I don't want to think about it because it is so awkward and you know to me to spend that much time like having to remember stuff and write it down and go through it I mean was that what was that sort of like it was hard and that started when I started telling the stories on stage I didn't expect I luckily when I started doing that I was doing that with a group of guys who I think were all there were four of us is me Anthony Tamanick, uh, Curtis Gwynn, and John Flynn, who are all fantastic comedians and um, awesome people. And I think the four of us in particular were doing a lot of shows together and kind of raising the bar for each other and sort of challenging each other to get a little bit, you know, funnier and more honest and more personal along the way and started opening up about a lot of that personal stuff. And the the really strange thing for me was that I don't know why, I still am not sure why, but I've pretty consistently clicked with kids of a certain age, which is like late high school to just after college, like talking about that era of my life, for some reason, like I first started getting any buzz in the comedy community when this big, there was like this gang of like 15 to 20 NYU kids who came to every show I did for like a year and called themselves the Geth Tards, which was like really awkward and pretty adorable and It was like this very strange thing of like they knew it was sort of an ironic fan club and that they knew I shouldn't have a fan club. Like I'm not of a status to have a fan club, but they also did really like what I was doing and saying. And it started this thing for me where I realized like if when I open up about that time of my life and especially with the fact that it was a struggle for me, like I got I had some really dark times and, and I think as many kids do. Um, they really identified with it and I was able to sort of make that funny and own it and say like, I think it's not anything to be ashamed of. And in fact, 
it's probably the funniest material I have to offer. Like, I think a lot of the funniest stuff in my stand-up and in the book is also some of the stuff that's that's the least funny in the real-life context. Like, I think, like, stories about me, like, flipping out and trying to, like, 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 break into a kid's dorm room at Princeton because I wanted to fight him when I didn't know him. Like, that's probably the funniest story in the book, I think. But it's also, when you think about it, it's like a 18-year-old kid with severe rage issues committing crimes and threatening another human being who has done very little to deserve it. What's the line? Uh, comedy is two steps away from tragedy or something? Comedy equals tragedy plus time. That's you know? it, yeah. I think I'm putting that into action and, uh, <laughs> in a big way. And I don't know. I, I think once I realized that, once I realized that kids were identifying with it, I kind of felt almost responsible like i felt like it was almost um something i needed to do like if people were hearing me tell those stories on stage and i was getting facebook like that started around that era where i would get facebook messages from kids that were like i have a lot of problems and no one to talk to and you're the person i can talk to and i was like whoa 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 whoa. like i'm a comedian like I'm, i'm a comedian you need to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about but I started realizing that maybe a lot of people that age like don't have anybody to go to and still feel shame or stigma about like dealing with their awkwardness and depression and stuff like that. So at that point, I kind of was like, well, this is like what I'm good at. Like I'm good at making this stuff funny. It's kind of my bread and butter and the stuff I'm most interested in. And also kids are responding to it, enjoying the comedy of it, but also I get a few too many like late night Facebook messages from strangers who are like, you know, telling me that it's it's something they struggle with too and I'm helping them. So I feel like, you know, that's kind of part of my, I don't know, mission statement at this point or like feeling of responsibility to my audience. So I'm happy to go there. I know that was like a mumbling, awkward answer. Yeah, but, not at all. No, not at all. But what, yeah. And where'd you come up? Jersey? I, yeah, I grew up in New Jersey and went to Rutgers, which was the state school of New Jersey, mm-hmm. which like, especially lately, everything you hear about Rutgers University is horrible. And that was my experience there too. <laughs> Just like, like I was not surprised to hear that um, a, a, a an authority figure was throwing sporting equipment and yelling homophobic stuff at kids. Like I wasn't that shocked, you know, I wasn't that shocked about that. Like it's a, it's an environment, it's a good school and I had a rough time there and, and um, yeah, I came up there and like, what does that mean? Rough time? Just like, well, you know, like I really did. This is about, uh, we're about to get a little heavy if that's okay. That's but, great. But like, yeah, I mean like I started like when I was in like eighth ninth grade i just started feeling really really sad for long stretches of time and didn't know what it was and i remember i remember once one of my older brother's friends coming over and just sort of seeing me and pulling me aside he didn't know me at all and he was like hey man like you all right what's going on and i was like yeah i'm I'm fine and it was like the first time that i realized like oh like someone is noticing the fact that i'm not okay you know and all through high school, that came and went. And, you know, there were some stretches where it got really bad. There was some stretches where it was, like, never, like, an outright serious suicidal attempt, but, like, definitely, like, treading too close to that type of thought. And um, when I was about to head off to college, like, I applied 
to three schools, LaSalle, where my brother went, and Fordham, which is a great school and like a small private university. Both of those schools are small private universities. And Rutgers, which is a state school of 40,000 people. And I never visited Rutgers and I got in and I'd been all gung-ho about Fordham and then I got into both and I was just like, I'm going to Rutgers. And my, my mom was like, what? And I was like, I'll just go to Rutgers. It's fine. And she was like, are you sure? And it was, I look back and I'm like, it was such a cry for help. It was like a major life decision made out of total apathy for no reason. And I just went there and I think it's a fine place if you know what you're getting into, but it's a school of 40,000 people. It is the state school of New Jersey and I love New Jersey and I'm a huge defender of New Jersey. But at the same time, like 40,000 kids you have, like there's that meathead element. Like there's a lot of that. New Brunswick also has a pretty like legendary music scene, but that had completely fallen apart when I was there. Like I was there in an era when all the real venues had closed and the basement scene hadn't started up yet. So it was just kind of this place where there was like nobody, you know, 40,000 people on a campus, like nobody's going to notice one sad kid. You know what I mean? Like, what do you think made you sad like what was what was your home life like your parents together you said you have siblings well yeah i mean my home life was great my parents are together they still are they're like the most in love people i ever met and i I mean i think really what it was was my town like it was weird it was the 80s in northern new jersey and i drive to my town now and i'm like it's super nice and i love it but I think anybody who grew up in that area at that time would agree like it had its rough side and there was a lot of like my I think in my hometown it was really weird man there was like a lot of strange people there was a lot of um like I grew up in a real Irish Catholic neighborhood where there was like a lot of kids who were I don't I guess like just to be blunt like there were a lot of kids who were angry kids who had like drunk parents or absent parents Irish Catholic nowhere yeah 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 for real you know what I mean like big (laughs) surprise but there was just a lot of like bullying and violence and it didn't get dealt with like the attitude was kind of like you're getting beat up like go fight back you know and like things would happen like bad shit would happen in the schools and then it would never be in the papers and my older brother um got like really horrifically bullied i don't talk about this that much i don't think i've ever talked about it on a podcast but like my older brother is two and a half years older than me and it was like i remember when we were older we watched welcome to the dollhouse together for the first time and we both kind of looked at each other and we were like this is not it's not that bad you know what i mean like it was kind of like my brother's experience was really really horrible and rough and i think like being a couple years younger than him and seeing him get brutalized made me kind of go like, well, I bet like it made me really not trust people. And it also like, I used to get, I was like such a a tiny, I don't know. Am I allowed to just start cursing? I was like such a, like a tiny little pipsqueak, but I was just like, if anybody ever messes with me, I'm going to fight. So I used to get in fist fights all the time. I used to like constantly be, have my guard up thinking people were kind of like being more aggressive than they were. And it just kind of, I think, closed me off and shut me down, you know? And then on top of that, you couple that with like North Jersey in the eighties and early nineties wasn't an environment where it's like, what do you want to do kid? Oh, I want to go be an actor. Like it wasn't really, you know, like in a blue collar Irish neighborhood, like it wasn't really something that you you didn't say teamsters. (laughs) Yeah, no, it wasn't. Yeah. Like I don't want to like work in a factory or, or, or be a plumber. You know, I want to try this other thing. And 
just didn't, I just felt very weird. And I also felt very, I think, scared and angry a lot. And I think that like messed up my brother and it messed me up, you know, in was, different w- ways, but related ways. Was there a way out in high school? Cause I know I'm, I'm goofily naive to everything that around, surrounds me. Like I've almost been hit by buses several times. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? And then I'm fine. But, um, in my high school, I just kind of like went straight for the theater department and hung out. But I never saw, no one ever messed with the theater kids that I saw. Maybe it did happen. But when you were in school, if you wanted to be an actor or anything, were you, you know, part of the thespian group or? I was. I was kind of like Max Fisher, man. Like I was like the president of the debate club. I was in the marching band. I played cello. I was a, a part of the newspaper staff and I did theater. So maybe I was like spreading myself too thin, but theater was kind of the big one. And I look back and I'm like, again, like there was no one. There's nobody around who was like, this is an actual thing you can do. You know, it was kind of, it kind of felt like this is like, you kind of do this and then you move on into real life, you know? So I don't know, like, no, no, I never really felt like anybody sort of sat me down and said, you know, like, you're really passionate about a lot of stuff. Which one do you want to do? Like, what's your focus? It kind of just felt like, do your thing. But then again, like, like I said, like I went to a high school where there was, a race war and it never showed up in the newspaper where there were like people fist fighting in the halls to the point where they said go home and then no one mentioned it again there was no consequences to that so they're like bigger fish to fry and i look back and it was really weird that's really weird right yes that's like really weird to be 15 and be like oh we got sent home yesterday because like kids from other towns were meeting at our high school to fight and overrunning the high school and now it's just like back to math class. Like that's weird. That's really odd. And I don't think it's that way anymore. I think they fixed a lot of things up. Yeah, it's. I, I, I used to teach in California. I was a sub and saw some things where you're just like, wow, did that just happen? Yeah, you know? man. I remember yeah. the first one. I'm one of like. I remember. Here's like two stories that explain why I was like such an angry kid and why I felt. Because I think you have anger so consistently as a young person, it turns into depression eventually because that's just like not an emotion you can have constantly. And the two things I always think back on are, I remember one time my brother got, he got his collarbone broken. That's how like bad things were. He got like picked on and he wound up getting his shoulder broken. And my mom went down to the school and was like, so what's going to happen to the kid who did this? And they were like, well, he has a really rough home life. And my mom was like, I'm really sorry about that. But like, what's the consequence? And they were like, well, if we like suspend him, he's going to get beat at home and we can't do that. We're not going to do that. And my mom's like, oh, so you're going to protect that kid, but no consequences for my, for this. And it was just like, I remember when that happened and my family was so distraught, you know, like my father was furious. My mom was so sad and my poor brother. And I was like this little guy, I must've been in like fourth grade. And I was just like, okay, like I need to, I, I'm, I need to watch out for myself, you know? And that wasn't true 100% of the time, but there were enough incidents that I saw, um, in my neighborhood with my brother and a few of the other weak among us. And I was just like, well, I'm going to be angry all the time like no one's gonna mess with me and then I also remember specifically one time my brother coming home and some kid had picked on him 
And my dad, he, you know, he would get frustrated sometimes. He's a loving dude. But he was like, why won't you fight back? I don't get it. Why don't you fight back? And my brother was like, I don't, I don't want to. I don't know. And my dad's like, I don't get it. Like, people are fighting you. Why don't you fight back? And my brother was like, I don't know how. And my dad flipped out and went, you pick up a rock and you bash in their brains. <laughs> and I remember so distinctly, I was like sitting at the top of our steps, listening to the fight. And I was like, bingo, got it. Pick up a rock. <laughs> and bash in their brains and then i just became this like angry fighter for like a window of my life and it it wasn't just me i remember there was a kid who i went from kindergarten through Rutgers with who's one of my best friends and then we lost touch after college and we got together like a year ago and we sat down it was him and his wife and we met up at a bar in new york and he just walked down and he sat down and first thing he goes he goes thomas alva edison middle school ruined my life forever and i was like yeah I'm not crazy. And his wife was like, oh no, like, are you, he just sits and exaggerates and like, he won't stop harping on this stuff. And I, he started telling the stories that he tells her. I was like, all of it's true. She was like, really? I thought he was just like completely exaggerating. I was like, no, no. Like he, my best friend, I remember he had an incident where these kids from the next town over from us, which was like a much worse town. He like went to walk home from school one day and these kids were standing outside of the fence of our school and they went to walk out and it was him, my friend and his brother. And they were like, yo, give us your Walkman." And my friend turned around and walked back to the school and was like, these kids are like threatening us and saying they're going to take our stuff. And the teacher, the, whoever they talked to was like, where are they? And they're like, just on the other side of the fence. And they were like, oh, nothing we can do. And they were like, what? And he's like, yeah, if they're not on school property, there's nothing I can do. So they're only, they just had to like, this was before cell phones. Like you couldn't call your mom and say, come pick me up, you know? So they just had to walk out and these kids beat them up and took their walk, man. Like that just happened. That's my best friend. So yeah, I was like pretty angry and got real depressed. Like it makes sense now that I, when I say it out loud, I think it makes a lot of the sense. The administrations at these schools sound <laughs> horrific. I worked, <laughs> really I worked in horrible. schools in South Central Los Angeles that took better care of kids than this. It's nuts, man. And it was also my town. <laughs> it's so crazy. I don't know. I'm supposed to be a comedian. This is supposed to be a funny one. Instead, it's like super grim. But like our town also... Give it time. It'll be funny. Hopefully. Our town was also very divided. Like it was real spread out geographically. And there was a rich half of town and a poor half of town. So the junior high was just like the worst. It was worse than the high school because it was just like the three or four worst neighborhoods in one school and everybody getting just old enough to realize that they had a raw deal. You know, it was like hitting seventh and eighth grade and hitting that point where you're like, oh, some kids have it better than I do. Let's rage against each other all the time. It was messed up. It was messed up. But I think it made me funny. I think it made me funny in the end. That was my question too, because I was talking about bullying with someone last night and obviously like it's different now with the internet and all that stuff. But I was like, in, I was like, in some ways, I think maybe, not that it's a good thing, but I feel like I was kind of a goofy looking kid and I had like big bifocals and curly hair and I got made fun of a lot. But I feel like maybe it helped kind of like get you ready for the real world where like everyone isn't super encouraging all the time and you have to deal yeah. with the rejection. And do you feel like maybe that's kind of driven you kind of professionally? Or I think so. I think it gave me two things, which is one... I needed to find something. I needed to find something. Like when I got to Rutgers, it was really eye-opening for me because I think part of why I sort of like really crashed at college was it was the first time I was around a lot of people not from my town. And I'd say things like, oh yeah, like that's like when this happens and people would be like, 
what? And I was like, yeah, like, no, like in high school, like this used to happen. And people were like, no, that's really fucked up. Like that shouldn't happen. And I started to realize like, oh man, like a lot of, I was like processing a lot. I shouldn't have to deal with a lot of that. So it made me really think like, really say like, I need something, like I need to find something. And when I found UCB, it was like such a joyous experience for me. The Upright Citizens Brigade, which is where I like trained in comedy and performed and still perform. It was like such to be like, oh, there's all these other creative weirdos. And back then, this was 13 years ago, like no one was getting jobs. It was just like everybody just loved this thing and this place. And You were in college when you started going Yeah, there? yeah. That's great. Because I just needed to get out of New Jersey for a while for as much as I love it. So it, it made me really seek out satisfying things. And then also, I do think growing up the way I did made me feel like like when when I I know how to fight for things. Like I do know how to fight. And I wish I didn't have to learn so up close and personal, but... I think it did help me in the sense, like the book, like I was like, I want to write a book and people kept saying no. And I was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. And I think with a lot of the stuff I do today, there's, I try to do things that are maybe not the most likely to happen, but I just kind of put myself in a mental place where I'm like, this is worth doing and I'm going to make it work. And I think that's from just sort of like maybe having to draw some lines in the sand as a kid and say like, this is how things are going to be for me. Like, I'm not going to put up with certain things and I'm not going to settle for certain things. And I think it was positive once I straightened my head out to have those qualities. So when you said you were seeking something out and you did that, said theater was your saving grace in high school and then in Rutgers you find UCB. Did you know at a young age with everything going on that comedy would be where you would end up? Yeah, I did. I, I tried to drop out of school after my junior year. Because I was like, I'm doing this. I can just tell I'm doing this. I don't know how I'm going to make it work, but I'm going to go make this work. And I had also gotten a job at this magazine called Weird New Jersey, which is like uh, about like ghost <clears throat> stories and haunted places in Jersey. And that was like another... Weird New Jersey and UCB were the two things that I think really saved my life because it was just like two two things that I found when I was 19 years old were like UCB was this like very punk rock place and then Weird New Jersey was these two guys who were making this living off of this fanzine and they managed to actually like have homes and families and all off of this fanzine it was super cool and inspiring and with those two things I was like well these I'm gonna wind up doing one of these things for the rest of my life and I told my parents I wanted to drop out I think at the beginning of my junior year and they were like you were a junior in college at 19 or 20 right okay. yeah something, yeah, like, something that. like that am i just dumb it took me until 22 to go to school <laughs> well i think i'd been i found ucb right before i turned 20 and then it was after about a year of doing both weird new jersey and ucb how'd you find weird new jersey in. weird new jersey i was like i found a copy of it in a comic book store when i was 16 and it was all about the whole issue was about abandoned mental hospitals and there was one near my town that we used to go sneak into and i was like oh this is the best magazine like immediately i was like this they make a magazine about abandoned mental hospitals the best and i started writing them letters and they started publishing them and then i went and met them at a book signing and they were like you're a kid like you're writing all that stuff so then when i was in college they were like expanding very quickly and, and kind of needed help and reached out and they were like, you know, we don't know how much we have for you to do, but if you want to come like stuff envelopes and put names in our mailing list and pick up boxes at our warehouse and drop them off at bookstores, that can be your summer job. And then it just stuck. Like I, I, I was at that age where I was, and also like so passionate about anything that felt good that I was like, I'm going to, I like, 
they still, I haven't worked for them full time in eight years and they still will, there's still things they publish today that are in the files because I just wrote so much. I was just like, I'm going to, I just killed it and just loved it. And it was the most fun. It's the best job I'll ever have driving around New Jersey, looking at haunted places. That's the best job. (laughs) (laughs) I feel the opposite, but that works. It was, of course, I don't like being scared. It was so awesome. Yeah, I hate scary movies, but I love going inside abandoned mental hospitals. What's love like the it. craziest thing you've kind of stumbled upon? The craziest thing? Yeah. The f- one was I found in the basement. I went to the basement of an abandoned mental hospital in North Princeton, New Jersey by myself, which was a very bad idea. And I heard someone walking around on the floor above me, which was one of the scariest experiences of my life. But I found a book on the ground that was this handwritten nurse's log from like 1975. And it was handwritten. And basically it was just like anything that happened in this one building, This it was some nurse's job to just log it. And they told this, she wrote this story. And one day that was like, it was like 3.05. This patient is like saying he has a pass to go off the grounds with his family, but he didn't fill out the paperwork. His family's here. We're not letting him go. Then it was like 3.10, patient's very agitated, will not take no for an answer. 3.15, the patient is like getting really out of control. We're calling in security. And then there was a big gap and it was like 3.45, patient removed to dental ward. And you were just like, oh, here's this like poor dude who was a crazy person. They lost his paperwork. And then he freaked out and they kicked his teeth out of his head. Like, oh my God, that's horrible. And like reading that in the basement of the mental hospital where it happened was truly horrific. And then there was another time where we were driving around in these woods and this guy, this monster, (laughs) this like giant monster of a man cornered me in his pickup truck and told me he was going to have sex with me. That was really bad as well. That, that was really bad. That as didn't well. come at the top of the list. <laughs> I mean, there were so many bizarre things that happened at that job. I was held at gunpoint once. I was held at gunpoint in inside an abandoned home for troubled boys up in the up in the mountains of North Jersey. This guy came in there. He like saw me and my boss walking around. And he snuck in. We were in the basement and heard the door open and someone come down the steps. And this dude with a shotgun came down and he just pointed it at us. Someone was like what are you guys doing here? And my boss was like, we're taking pictures, man. Like, put that gun down. I was so terrified. The guy was like, there's no trespassing here. And my boss was like, are you the owner? And the guy was like, no, but I'm a friend of the owner. And my boss was like, you're breaking more laws, pointing a gun at us than we are sneaking in here to take pictures. And the guy kind of was like, Joe, yeah, get get out of here. He like realized that like the vigilante thing was not cool. (laughs) So yeah. That's like, that's probably number three is when I had the gun pointed at me on the, got paid to do it. That was my job. I was getting paid hourly wages. So yeah. Creepy journal, possible rape gun. (laughs) The rape was probably worse than the journal to be honest. But the funny thing about that was we published that story. We got all this letters from other people who encountered this lunatic. And then he, we got a letter from a cop who told us the guy died and that he wanted to let us know because turns out that because the, the cops had to deal with this guy all the time they knew him and it turns out that the guy who threatened to rape me was a big fan of weird new jersey and like used to love reading about himself it was really a strange experience to um, to find that out it was really really strange it was really bad <laughs> it was truly truly horrific best job ever well it sounds like you like things that challenge you and um i guess what the definition of normalcy would be yeah 
I mean, I didn't really have an option growing up. I was like a weird kid. So you graduated from Rutgers, though? I did. I okay. did. My parents, like, could not. They were like, "Do not, do not drop out. Just get any degree." So I declared as an American Studies major, which is like history for unmotivated people. And just did that and got the degree and got out and didn't even attend my graduation. It was on my birthday. It was on my 22nd birthday. And my birthday present was like, please just don't make me go to graduation. And my mom was like, you're really, your attitude towards your education is horrible. And I was like, you know, the ceremony's four hours long, right? And she was like, happy birthday. We don't have to go. I don't want to sit there for four hours either. <laughs> just hearing them read names. And when the cable access shows start? That started, we started the Chris Gethard show at UCB in 2009 and it was like a monthly uh, show and it got a a surprising amount of attention quickly. Like it became a real hot show and was sold out and that built. And then in early 2011, I, I did this thing where I managed to convince Diddy, Sean Combs, to come appear on the show and it became this sort of like thing that was kind of known virally because he said he would do it on Twitter and tweeted it out to 2 billion people. And then he just stopped communicating with me. And for like a year, it was like, when are they going to find a date? Is it really going to happen? So when it did happen, like the New York Times was there covering it and all this crazy stuff. And after that, we were like, I don't know that we're going to top that. We did a few more shows and like the enthusiasm just wasn't there. So I was planning on ending the show and then met a friend of mine, a guy who I I know from UCB, who I taught in a class years ago. And he sat me down. He's like, you know, I work at the public access studio and your show would be perfect for it. And he started telling me about it. And I was like, I grew up loving like local TV and public access TV. And I was like, this sounds really good, but do I want to put all this time into a public access show? And then he told me that they stream everything online. And I was like, oh, that's way different. Like if that, if it means anyone in the world can watch it, then yeah, let's like, we get all the charm of doing a crappy public access show and we get to broadcast it out on the internet. Like maybe we could actually turn this into something. So that started in June of 2011. We switched over. Wow. It was so funny when Jeff was on the show because Jeff like played solo and it, he can be kind of serious and dark and there's like guys dancing and like it was so goofy. It was really cool. People slow dancing too. Yeah. It was really <laughs> intense. But I, I hope we had fun. I think the musicians tend to have fun on the show. Is, is it just... Is it just you who creates the show? Do you have a team of people you work with? No, it's a huge team. It's like between the people on the show and the people behind the scenes, there's between like 20 and 30 people working on it every week, all for free, which is astounding to me. And all just because we like it and people seem to respond to it. And yeah, generally on the show, there's usually like five or six people on the show taking calls and doing the bit, whatever the bit is that week. And then we have a house band. And then a big gang of people who, you know, direct it and take the calls and run the cameras and all that stuff. So it's a kind of like a massive experiment, but I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. There was a part of me, like when we started doing the public access show, if you watch the early episodes, they're truly sad, like grim not and sad, not in an interesting way. Like it's not going well. And you can see it all over my face. And I was like, oh, this is really embarrassing. And my name is on this thing. But over time, we figured out more and more like how to work that studio. And it's turned into something that I'm really proud of. You know, I don't know if it'll... I've held out hopes for a while that it would turn into my job somehow. And I feel like that... I'm starting to get realistic about maybe that's not going to happen after two years of doing it. Like we've gotten a ton of press and the press hasn't led to it 
taking off in a bigger way. So maybe that's not going to happen, but I'm still like very psyched to do it and proud about it. And I don't know. I like it. I wanted to, um, I was wondering if you could explain this thing recently with the yearbook quote <laughs> things. I was trying to explain it to Steven and I was like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> this girl who watches my show, like again, like a lot of high school kids and a lot of college kids watch the show. And a lot of them, I think like that, like we just speak very honestly on the show. One of the best things about public access is there's no consequences. Like we can, like we can, we can end an episode 20 minutes early. If we feel like it, we can say whatever we want. Like if it fails, who cares? There's no ratings, you know? So we try a lot of stuff and, um, we get really honest sometimes. And I, like I said, like I got no problem, like speaking honestly and, and, and not worrying about if it's funny and, a lot of kids have really attached to the show in that way. And there's a phrase that came up with the show, which is this phrase, lose well, which I just randomly said one time and people started quoting it back to me. And my whole point was like, there was a girl on the show who said she like felt like a loser. And I was like, that's good. Like you shouldn't, if that's what you are, that's what you are. And you shouldn't try to avoid that. You should just try to be good at it. Like be the best loser you can be, lose well. And a girl who watches the show who goes to high school in upstate New York tried to quote me, lose well, Chris Gethard, as her yearbook quote. And she sent an email to the show and said she was going to do it. And I was like, that's awesome. Like, I'm going to be quoted in some kid's high school yearbook. Like, that's so cool. And then she wrote back a few weeks later and said, we, they wouldn't let me do it because your last name spells the words get hard. My last name is pronounced Gethard, but phonetically it's get hard. And she was like, yeah, they won't let me do it. And I was like, that's so fucked up, man. Like, I'm a real person. Like, you're not, I'm a real person. And I said that, like, I'm an author. I wrote a book. Like, they can't do that. And she went and talked to them again and then emailed again and was like, yeah, no, they're sticking to their guns. They will not let me put your name in our yearbook. I was like, that's so horrible. Like, I feel like. I what if your like, last name was Babcock? Yeah, like what if you, you know? There's a lot of last names in the world, and I, I was just like, like who's more immature, the student <laughs> or the teacher who's the one reading it that way? And then I was like, I got picked on in high school when I was in high school, like 15 years ago or whatever. I can't believe I'm getting picked on in high school again, and I'm about to turn 33. Like this is nuts. So the girl was like really heartbroken, not heartbroken like in a huge way, but she was like, I think like said they wouldn't let her do the quote and then i think really embarrassed that she like emailed us before finding that out so we made a video where i drove up to her hometown and hung out with her for the day and discussed the whole issue and we put it online and I, people seem to respond well to it they seem to think it was funny so the quote never got in the quote i think they i think she did get to put lose well but attributed to no one attributed to no one they would not put my name it's like that stinks, man. Yeah, they, they probably goes, they probably legitimately thought that the kid was screwing with them, and that they meant, oh, it's going to be get hard. And well, right. the sad part is that when she submitted it, she actually wrote a letter preemptively and was like, "Here's who this guy is. He's a comedian. Here's like, like he's been on these shows, and he wrote a book, and here's a link to it. And his last name spells this thing. And I want to assure you that this is not a joke where I'm trying to like, oh. slip his name in. And that's why they said no." Because she did a very mature and responsible thing explaining it. They were like, oh, that is what you're up to. And jumped on it, which I thought was just like, so it was like pretty funny. Like demoralizing, but also in a way that completely fits my life and my comedy. (laughs) 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 Who who inspired you to do comedy growing up? Who inspired me to do comedy growing up? Like for me, growing up in the Northeast, like, oh, like 
Howard Stern was on the radio every day. Like our bus driver used to play Howard Stern every day, and it was awesome. And David that Lander, right there sums up your school. <laughs> yes, right the bus drivers allowed to uh, <laughs> <laughs> broadcast Howard Stern. Also, one time where a bully on my bus was challenged. The bus driver stopped the bus, got off the bus, and challenged a student to a fist fight. <laughs> that also happened on the bus. No way. Yes, and nothing <laughs> came of it. Nothing ever came of that. But yeah, it was Howard Stern. I loved Letterman. I was obsessed with Letterman. The big one was when I found Andy Kaufman, which is like not surprising, I think, for many comedians. But I remember when I saw I'm from Hollywood, I just obsessively sought out everything he did. And then you know, like Bloom County comics. I remember Bloom County, if you ever read that. that was Berkeley like, Breathed. Yes. Another weird name. Opus and Bill the Cat. Those were the funniest thing in the world to me. Uh, my dad, it's like one of the few things my dad and I actually agree on. It's the best. It's the, the greatest. It's, I feel like it's also forgotten. Like it used to be, because it, it won like a, a Peabody or a Pulitzer yeah, or something. One of the two. And it used to be like Calvin and Hobbes, The Far Side. Bloom County, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, Bloom County's been a little more forgotten. He got weird though when he, the writer, got into like a, an ultralight accident and smashed. Oh, is his that back. what happened? And then after that, it never really. It took him a while to come back. I didn't from, know that. I that. remember he wrote like Outland, which was like a Bloom County <clears throat> extension series. Same thing, really. Opus, and they and, were never as good. Mm-mm. But those. But he wrote a children's good. book called Mars Needs Moms that was made into a movie that did terribly. Really? Uh, just like a That's year or sad. two ago. I want good things for that guy. He wrote great comics when yeah, I was a I kid. I think he's okay. Remember how many of those books he sold? Oh, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I bought all the compendiums, so. Oh, yeah. Th- yeah. Those are, I got, literally They're I bought awesome. those for my father for the past. They're so good because he footnoted them all. Mm-hmm. He like went through his own entire history of his comic and put footnotes on like, here's what I was thinking when I wrote it. It's super cool. But yeah, those pro wrestling i was like obsessed with pro wrestling i think if you watch the public access show and you hear that i love pro wrestling some of the stuff we do on the show like starts to make more sense are you still into wrestling no no i got into i stopped watching wrestling and started watching a lot of mixed martial arts like japanese mixed martial arts leagues which were crazy in college and then i started doing brazilian jiu-jitsu and i did that for like four or five years and then gave up on that. And now I'm not. I think I've finally gotten over like my fascination with violence to a degree <laughs> after many years. You don't feel like people are attacking you anymore? No, but professionally, I still do that. Professionally, I still like, am like, people don't want to give me a chance or like <clears throat> people don't have my back. And none of it's true. None of that's true. You know, like if I, I don't know. I, I sometimes do. I just have a chip on my shoulder and motivate myself with it sometimes. But I try to make sure it's healthy and not completely delusional. <laughs> have you ever done jujitsu with Jamie Kilstein? I've never done it. We've talked about it yeah. a bunch, and we've talked about like trying to figure. We've talked like when I was still doing it. I really met Jamie when I was on the tail end of my jujitsu time. So. We didn't really match up, but I, I think it would be it would have been really fun. I know he's super into it, but I never did it with him. But I did study at a school where like all these UFC fighters used to go train. So I've been in classes with George St. Pierre and classes with Frankie Edgar where like they're just across the room in the same class and I'm just like praying that I don't have to spar with them. It was really nuts. It was fun. It was really fun, but um you know, like I was just getting beat up all the time and hurting myself so i had to stop but yeah kilstein and i would talk about it a bunch but we never have 
Do you have kind of like an outlet now for that kind of aggression? Does it just go into your work or do you get into like running? Or like a lot anything? of it goes into my work and I joined a basketball league and I take it way too seriously. I'm the worst player on my team, but each week I send emails before the games where I try to like give like general patent speeches to inspire everybody to greatness. And then after the game, I give rundowns where I give like pep talks or shit talk the opponents. So basketball has kind of become my latest source of of my insanity <laughs> but yeah we have a just uh on on sunday we lost to our we haven't we have a team there's a team called the foreskins that's the enemy of my team and we lost to them by two points and it made all of us really mad really mad those guys are not good people <laughs> <laughs> i read something about you that i had to ask about um you hitchhiked from la to bonnaroo yeah it was kind of controlled hitchhiking i did this okay. project last year where one, why would you go to Bonnaroo? Sorry. <laughs> well, Bonnaroo asked me to perform. <laughs> That's And I'd reason. never been. So I went and performed. And I had a great time. Like, they've been really good to me. And I had a great time. Like, the festival itself is like a little anxiety inducing to me. And um, the whole environment is really overwhelming. But performing there is actually really great because the comedy to, area is awesome. To do comedy and in, 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 it's first of all, the comedy tent is the only tent that's air conditioned. So it's always packed. And then your audience is all high. Your audience is a bunch of stoned people. Like it's pretty ideal for comedy. Um, but yeah, they they asked me if I had any projects that I would do relating to Bonnaroo, and I pitched them this idea that I start in L.A. and don't plan how I'm going to get to Bonnaroo outside of the internet. So we got we like announced what it was, and we started. We got emails from people who said they would give me rides or places to stay, and then we were on Twitter the whole time. And the idea would just be like, I was like, I'm in Vegas. Anybody in Vegas following this thing? And then some kid did step up and was like, yeah, I can drive you into Arizona. And then we spent this whole day driving with this kid and we went to Arizona. And like, he brought us to this um, town. Like, I think it's the town that Cars is based on, this like dying Route 66 town. And this Radiator ham- Springs? It, it, I wish it was actually. It's called <laughs> Seligman, I think, in real life. We went to this hamburger stand that was That's Apache for Radiator Springs. What's that? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Apache. I, I like that you went with Apache. And not Navajo. I know. I'm regretting it now. That we all immediately realized like... That's, that's not a Southwestern you know? tribe. What how an idiot. How do you idiot. know which tribe? What a dipshit. I was impressed. You, Radiator Springs is at this town in the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's great recall. I'm a big Pixar fan. Yeah. But yeah, people just drove me all over and we went to weird places and I slept in suburban homes and hippie crash pads and punk houses and it got dangerous a few times but by and large it was a super pleasant like life-affirming experience where which people parts were really were dangerous? nice the scare well first of all like i wasn't really i wasn't part of it was that i couldn't purchase any of my own food like i had people needed to transport house and feed me but the the food in particular i felt really bad about like rides and places to stay were fun because people got to participate but then it was like if i could do it again i would buy my own food because it felt really awkward like stopping at a restaurant and somebody being like all right i'll pay for your meal and meanwhile you're like this comedian who's being paid to do this and there's like a camera crew it felt really bad maybe if it was they could choose what you eat that would be different they they were able to do that um and some of them took advantage of that (laughs) but we went like my nutrition was really really bad because I was like hesitant to accept food and the food I was getting was largely fast food. So I got to Denver and the altitude sickness, I passed out. I like fainted. 
And then the other one was we got stranded at a rest stop in Arizona and I tried to hitchhike and didn't realize I was hitchhiking next to a, like about a hundred yards away from a homeless woman who was hitchhiking and she, she attacked me with a stick. It was really bad. I had to run away. And then the other bad one. Weren't doing jujitsu then to take her down? No, I didn't want to deal with this. She had three dogs with her. Yeah. This good. woman and three dogs. But I was like, how are you going to get a ride? You have three dogs. <laughs> You're already like a homeless woman. You're like you're already someone. You're like a visible. You're like a, she was like a tramp. She was like an old timey tramp, like a visibly hoboish woman. Like you're already in the modern day asking a lot for someone to let you in their car, and you have three dogs. Like we're not really competing for rides, you and I. Whoever's gonna pick you up? There's a lot more people who will pick me up first regardless of how close we are to each other. It was really, but I didn't say any of that to her because she was busy calling me like a cunt and a cocksucker and swinging a large stick at me. So I ran away. And then the other one was these girls drove me from Kansas to St. Louis and then dropped me in a Waffle House. And because of when they picked me up, I had been awake for like almost, I think it was like between 36 and 48 hours. And I fell asleep in the Waffle House by myself after they left and then woke up and all the workers were looking at me. And I was like, man, like falling asleep in a Waffle like being judged in a Waffle House is something I do not want. Like that's not a good life, like a life moment when you're just being, you're the one being judged. You're like you're the shittiest me, person. You're open till four. You're the shittiest guy in the Waffle House. That's really bad. Like by the airport. So I left <laughs> and started just wandering around this neighborhood in St. Louis. And I wound up wandering into this like graveyard with all these graves from the like 1800s. I'm pretty sure it was like a slave graveyard. And it just kept going up this hill. And then at the top of the hill, there was this abandoned house and I was in this haze, like this sleep deprived haze. And I went into this abandoned house. And then when I came out, I saw this rabbit run by. And then in my periphery vision, another rabbit and then another rabbit on the other side. And I was like, oh no, these aren't real. Like I'm, I'm aware that I'm hallucinating rabbits and I'm in the middle of, I've been like walking at that point, I'd been walking like 40, 40 minutes up this hill into this graveyard, no other people. So I got out my phone and I started just like desperately tweeting pictures of where I was. And I turned on the location. Cause I was like, I think I might pass out in this graveyard in a bad area of St. Louis. Like, I think that might happen. And luckily the kid who had offered to give me a ride, he was like, I can give you a ride, I'll pick you up there, but I can't be there for two hours. And he eventually found me just standing in a graveyard, just staring at the ground, just standing. And I had these two, by that point, people had given me so much stuff that I had these two bags. And I was just holding these bags full of garbage, like granola bars and hats and like all sorts, like maps, all this stuff spilling out of the bags, just staring at the ground in a slave graveyard in St. Louis. That was really bad. But besides that, it was really great. What was the end result of this project? Was it, I mean, just a, a Twitter thing to do for Bonnaroo? Yeah, I mean, the, to me, what was interesting about it was like the public access show had, has been so fascinating in that people have actually found it and the community is built around it. And we get calls from like Sweden and Australia and all over the US and Canada. And it's like, there's really only... There's probably like 5,000 people watching every episode, but there are 5,000 people that really care and that really like, it feels to me like there's a lot of kids who are like kind of loners who have linked up, you know? And I see all these people who have become friends, like in New York, in real life, there's people who have been friends. There's like 10 or 11 couples that have been together who all met at the public access show. And then online, 
you see all these kids posting on Tumblr about it or like posting on the message board we have and they're like friends now and they're, I think some of them are very lonely people who have found friends through this thing. So the whole idea of like community building has become like a very interesting thing to me. And the Bonnaroo project to me was like, let's, let's sort of like test. I've got my community who knows my comedy and then Bonnaroo has its own community. And let's sort of see if we can kind of like merge the sort of like abstract idea of the internet and remind people like everybody on the internet's a real human being. The Diddy project was huge on that for me too. Cause like everybody was, all these people were like, how did you convince like Diddy to come out of his world into your shitty underground comedy in a basement world at UCB? And I was like, well, really, I just, I just went on Twitter and I asked him and he saw it and he said, yes. Cause he's just like another dude who's bored on his iPhone who checks Twitter. So to me, like, you know, the internet and technology, I'm, I'm about to get on like a soapbox, but it's like they're very disconnecting things. Like people walk around staring at their phones and don't talk to each other anymore, but they are all human beings. So I've really enjoyed trying to do some projects that are like, hey, we're all connected through the internet and let's try to sort of like shake that a little bit and remind ourselves that it's individuals that use the internet. And if you find this on Twitter, I might wind up in your car or your house by the end of the day, you know? And that was a really cool thing to tweet like. That could also be a bad statement. Very much so. Very much so. It was testing the limits of like the positivity and negativity mm-hmm. of that. And right after I got back, like two weeks after I got back, a guy got killed on the side of the road hitchhiking. And I was like, oh, that was a dumb idea. That was not smart. But for us, it was positive. Like being in Denver at this punk house and then tweeting like, hey, I don't have a place to crash tonight. And some guy who's a fish fan who lives in the suburbs of Denver was like, I got an extra bedroom in my basement, man, come there. And then the next day... I wind up like attending his son's first ever t-ball game with him and like playing catch with his son to warm him up. And it's just like, oh, right. Like there are still, despite how horrible the world can be and despite how like it's very easy to retreat into your own bubble now, like there are still people who like value human interaction and kindness and want to partake in it when given the opportunity. And to me, I don't know, as my comedy has become like a little bit closer to like, a lot of it, the public access show in particular is like a little, as much performance art as comedy at this point, which I think is pretentious to say, but it's just true. It's been said to me by enough people that I think it's true. And to me, like the community building and kindness sides of it are the, the interesting parts to merge with the comedy. So that was Bonnaroo. That's how I wound up hallucinating rabbits in a graveyard. It sounds <laughs> that that experience you have, you had getting to Bonnaroo as uh, awful and collective as it did sound, it's kind of what Bonnaroo is. Because when you get there, you're like, yuck. Well, the people are cool. Yeah. Some of them. And I grew up a punk kid. Like, I grew up loving punk rock, so I was definitely like, man, fish fans and hippies and Bonnaroo guys. But at the end of the day, it was good for me, I think, to remind myself too. Like, stayed with, like, a bunch of hippies, and I stayed with suburban people. And then in Kentucky... I stayed in the home of this like preacher, this like, like really hardcore born again style preacher who was like, like we ate meals with them and we all had to link hands and pray. And when we left his house, he prayed for our safety. And there was a bookshelf where every book on the shelf was a different edition of the Bible. It's, you know, like growing up in New Jersey and living in Brooklyn now, it's like, 
it's very, very easy for me to be a Northeastern liberal who has all his opinions. And then you get out there on the road and you're like, well, life is very different in other places. And I wish that things were a certain way, but then you're like meeting with kindness from like an ultra religious preacher in a town where there's a mega church on the outskirts of town and everybody's white and they're, he's like kind of brag. He was kind of like, we never have to lock our doors here. And I was kind of like, yeah, but everything's homogenous and controlled in like a Stepford Wives way too. But that's your life. And like life is, I don't know, like it's good for me. I have the same react. I had the same reaction to Bonnaroo and like, oh boy. Then you meet all these people who live different lives and you're like, right, everybody's just like trying to be a good person and trying to be happy and help each other out. And it's good. It's cool to see that stuff. It was cool to crash in all these houses. Who are your punk bands? My punk bands. Well, I'm most obsessed with the Smiths who are not a punk band, but I think when we were growing up, they were more so like they were more of the punk scene and punk kids like them. Now I think music is different enough that they're not regarded as that, but the Smiths I'm obsessed with. And then, you know, I loved like bad pop punk. I loved like screeching weasel and Jay church was my band, which is like a, a band that I think, um, is kind of forgotten a time jawbreaker and who else like social distortion and, a lot of that stuff, you know? And then also all like local bad Jersey bands and like I went to see in church basements and whatnot. Felix Frump and Missing Children and One Nature and other local bands. Weston. Weston was huge for us and yeah. the Bouncing Souls. Weston was crazy. Like I remember seeing them in California. They were like supporting for some band. I can't remember who. I want to say it might have even been the Aquabats, but I mean, it was crazy. And we're watching this being going, who the hell is this? Phenomenal. Awesome. And the it was first think, two albums I think it was, are so Yeah, good. I think got, was got Beat Up the first record? That was the second Second one. record. Got Beat Up is so amazing. It's ridiculous how good that record is. And it then still they kinda, holds up. They kind of like tried to turn into an indie rock band. Yes, they did. And no one liked it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Everybody loved like goofy, fun Weston. And then they started writing like six minute long songs, you yeah. know? Uh, but what, happened, what happened to your new shirt, Weston? Yeah, oh, <laughs> I got a new shirt. That's a great song. <laughs> did you ever go to any of those shows? And I know Jeff did a lot of crazy basement shows during that era. In New Brunswick? In New Brunswick, yeah. See, that was like, I feel like, like when I got to New Brunswick, there was a famous bar called the Melody Bar. That right. was like an all ages venue. That closed down my freshman year. So there was uh, right. the Court Tavern, but that was 21 and up. And I think when the Melody Bar closed, people weren't expecting that, and there weren't that many basement shows going on. That was going on like a few years before me, which is I think I think Jeff's maybe a couple years older than me. I think that was going on then. And then it really started back up with the Ergs, who are a fantastic band from Jersey. They, I think like they were around the time when it was like the Ergs and the Measure and... Um, you know, full of fancy, a lot of like, there were a lot of Jersey bands that restarted the basement scene after I had left. I was there in a dry spell. And now obviously like the screaming females came out of there and they're like the coolest band. Right. Right. I think it was um, like pre and post lifetime to me. Yes. Yes. Like, yes. Lifetime was like right before me. Lifetime was winding down when I got to New Brunswick okay. and then the Ergs kind of, I think were the ones that in my mind, they were like the ones that represent that rebirth of it. It always feels weird when you're on the arc of a scene. Yes. (laughs) So it was such a 
that was another thing about going there was like, oh, I'm like, at least there'll be a bunch of punk kids. And then there really, there weren't that many. There weren't that many. <laughs> <laughs> kind of fell apart. <laughs> I still went to, still went to shows and stuff, but comedy replaced punk rock for me in college. So you must have been coming in, you know, were you taking the train? Taking the train a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That Northeast Corridor, man. Yeah, the Northeast Corridor. It was so... Those late night trains after those UCB oh, shows dude. are quite a trip. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I used to take... Jonah and I both went through some UCB classes. Yeah. And I got to that point where I'm like, this is awesome stuff. I'm not good at it, and I'm cool with that. <laughs> I like the people that I know, because I was you know, way older, and there's all these NYU kids who were just phenomenal. Yeah, because they're like young, young. and living carefree <laughs> and too, like, too young and dumb to be like thinking hard about it and and then then kids in their 20s are just you know just solid at it but man taking that train around two in the morning and yeah man i missed that train a couple times (laughs) like missing the missing the last northeast (laughs) corridor train and having to sleep on the floor at penn station is like some of i think i had to do that twice and it was like some of the saddest nights of my life like penn station at 4 30 in the morning is just about as sad as it gets it's just about the worst you see from humanity the difference between Penn Station and Grand Central Station is astounding and how nice one is and how horrible the other yeah. is. Pretty insane. Yeah. <laughs> now, are you still performing weekly with the Stepfathers? No, I'm, I've, st- I've gone on hiatus just within the past few months with improv. I just kind of hit a wall where I was like, I don't love it anymore. And I'm sure it'll come back, but Stepfathers and Cat, I've kind of stopped doing... For the first time, I've stopped doing improv since I was 19, just to focus more on the public access show. Partially, I think it's just a matter of time. Like, I don't have the time, and my my improv shows were on Friday and Sunday, and I think a lot of times I was getting to the weekend, and I was like, oh, man, like, this feels like an obligation. This does not feel like blowing off steam. It feels like I want to sleep, you know? Which is like the same thing. Bobby Moynihan is one of my best friends, and we did so many shows together, and then he got SNL, and it was like, oh, that's so awesome. And then like he stops doing shows and I was like, oh man, I miss you. And he's like, well, I'm very tired all the time. <laughs> if I cannot do a show on Sundays, <laughs> probably for the best. And it makes sense to me more now that I'm not nearly as busy as him, but busy enough to feel it. So yeah, I don't know. Improv, I just hit a wall. I just hit a wall recently. I saw you recently though. You did that hip hop. Show. I did that do was that. Really funny. I did do that. Cypher Sounds, yeah. the morning DJ at Hot ninety seven, is also a huge improv nerd, which is astounding. It makes no sense, but he's hardcore, dedicated, and a student of the improv game. And he did, yeah, we did a show with Nori, and now on Friday we're doing another one with DJ Premier, which I'm is like, like a... that's so awesome, man. That's so awesome. What's the premise? It's basically Cypher Sounds. It's like a big deal in the hip-hop world. He's the morning DJ on the biggest hip-hop station in New York. Like, that will always have status, and he knows everybody. And he loves improv, and he basically is like, there's so much, like, hip-hop and improv have so much in common. And one is white dudes in khakis, and the other is, like, the definitive African-American musical movement of the past few decades. So, like, culturally the people doing them are very dissimilar traditionally, but the actual culture of the activities has a lot in common. So he brings in like a hip hop icon who tells stories from his life. And then the rest of us, um, make improvised scenes based off of them. And the first one was fun, but pretty awkward. It was going to be RZA. And then he got held on a movie set. So 
Nori from Capone and Noriega flew up from Miami just to do Cypher Sounds the favor. Like Cypher Sounds can call in favors that are like, hey, fly up from Miami and do an improv show, you know? It's crazy. But I think as, hopefully if he keeps doing it, I think he's right that there's some very like interesting, like there's an interesting Venn diagram where the mentalities cross over and I think it could become a cool show, you know? It kind of makes sense with improv and, you know, freestyling. Yeah, I think that's like... In fact, his name is Cypher, which kind of goes together. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I think also like, you listen to those old, like the the old school hip hop songs where people are like passing off the lines to one another and it has that mentality of like, sort of like passing the ball and building something together. And I think it does fit in a weird way. In many ways it does not, but in some interesting ways it does. That's the only improv show I've done in a month. Really? And I'm do I did it just purely to meet Rizza and DJ Premier. And <laughs> I just I'm like, that's so cool, man. That's rad. DJ Premier is like the he's like the best, right? He's like one of the, I don't really know a lot about that world. I mean Gangstar and okay. then he produced like a ton of like he produced like a ton of early Nas stuff and I mean like so much stuff. So much stuff. It's like super cool that he's doing a show at the U C B theater probably will be like the nerdiest night of his life and the coolest thing that's ever happened to UCB. <laughs> <laughs> From Diddy to this, I mean, it seems like you're opening doors left and right. Yeah, man, I'm a real bridge to the <laughs> hip-hop community. <laughs> so Chris thought that got pretty grim, but based on a lot of people we've spoken to, like that was, you know, kind of a normal tale of childhood. Actually, no, it was pretty horrific. <laughs> it was, yeah, pretty horrific. But yeah, I think I think we've had... Quite a few kind of serious podcasts. But yeah, Chris still manages to make even those stories pretty hilarious. I just think it's so great that that um, Word New Jersey still has things he's written. Yeah. I haven't written that much in my life. No, no way. He's just a good dude. And so he's got the, the Chris Gethard show, which you can watch online whenever you want. It's done weekly. Um, I hope he goes back to improv. I can understand getting burnt out on it, but... Yeah, something tells me the people that get burnt out on it are the people that you really want to see. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I think you know. I hope so too. Pretty awesome. And now, because of him, now that just means we have one more connection to Bobby Moynihan. It's true. It's who, true. Who was on Sesame Street, which just takes over the whole SNL thing for me. It's like SNL, awesome, improv, cool. We need to talk about working with Elmo. Yeah, for real. We can get him on. What Elmo? Yeah, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's end this now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you want to leave a comment, go to facebook.com slash goingofftrack. You can go to our website, goingofftrack.com. Click on donate and bad Elmo joke. Bad Elmo joke.